Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 23rd, 2013, and my guest is Dan Pallotta. Dan is Chief Humanity Officer of Advertising for Humanity. Advertising for Humanity works with foundations and donors to improve charities they care about. He created Pallotta Teamworks, which created multi-day charitable events that raised hundreds of millions of dollars to fight AIDS and breast cancer. And he is the author of Uncharitable, How Restraints on Nonprofits Undermine Their Potential. Dan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. Our topic for today is your book, Uncharitable. It's a rather extraordinary book, which I found extremely interesting and provocative. If you're involved in a charity out there listening or you give to a charity, which I hope is almost all of you, uh, you should read this book or watch Dan's TED Talk or listen to this rest of this podcast. There's a lot to think about. Dan, you, you argue that our cultural attitudes toward charity have made charitable organizations less effective. What's wrong with how we think about charities? Well, we have these two rule books. We, we have one for the nonprofit sector and one for the for-profit sector. And in the name of an ethic, this separate rule book really discriminates against the sector in at least five different areas that I described in the book, uh, compensation, uh, the ability to advertise and market on the scale that the for-profit sector does, the ability to take the kinds of risks the for-profit sector takes, um, the amount of time the for-profit sector has to demonstrate the value of an investment, and last uh, but not least, a, a capital market itself. So we we have this deprivation, all-volunteer, all-donated goods mindset about the charitable sector and uh, it may have worked when charity was about neighbor-to-neighbor neighbor assistance, but it doesn't work when these organizations are now charged with uh, attempting to solve large-scale global logistical problems. Well, let's take a couple of the examples uh, that you talk about in the book. Uh, let's start with compensation. Uh, so it does sound good, as you just mentioned, to get things donated. You know, We're a charity. We didn't pay for any of this. This was all donated. Our, a lot of our workers are volunteers, and our staff is is paid a very small amount because that way more of your money goes to to the to the cause. And th- those two issues, uh, compensation and then overhead, which which you discuss a lot in the book, those sound great, don't they? I mean, we we don't overpay our employees, and we keep our overhead low that way, so that more money goes to the the cause that you all care about. What's wrong with those arguments? It does sound good, doesn't it? More of your money uh, goes to the cause. Well, there are a number of different problems with that. Uh, You know, first of all, this focus on costs and this focus on overhead eliminates any conversation about impact. So we're not having a conversation and donors are not having a conversation about how 
effective the organization actually is at solving problems. So who cares if the overhead is low if no problem is getting solved? And really, who cares if the overhead is high if the problem is getting solved? Because ultimately, we want the problem to get solved. So the the overhead question has has a number of flaws. A few of the easy ones to to talk about and described are are describe are first it operates on a on a mistaken theory of waste. So a charity tells you ninety cents of your donation goes to the cause, and you think, well, that's great. Now I know that they don't waste any money, but but you don't know that at all. How do you know they're not wasting the 90 cents that's being spent on the cause? That's where all the money goes. That's where the largest opportunity for waste is. Related to that, it tells you nothing about the quality of services. So a soup kitchen can tell you 90 cents of every donation goes to the cause, and you'll never learn that the soup is rancid because you never asked about the quality of the soup. Um, Next, the percentage of your donation that goes to the cause depends entirely on how the charity defines the cause. So the more broadly they define the cause, the higher the percentage they can tell you is going to the cause. So there's, there's, it, it, it actually operates on a false theory of transparency as well, because unless you know the underlying accounting and definitions of the cause, there is no transparency in that simple um, uh, articulation of an overhead percentage. Worse, this this demand that charities keep overhead low prevents them from spending money on the overhead things they have to spend on in order to grow. And that's how we institutionalize the miniaturization of these organizations. And, we're, you know, we're dealing with massive social problems, so the last thing we want is miniature organizations. Um, you know, on the question of... The simple question of fundraising, a a donor will say, well, I don't want them to spend any money on fundraising. I want as much as possible to go to the Uh, cause. Well, well, basically you're saying, I don't, I want to be the only donor because I don't, I don't want you to spend any money going out to find uh, other donors. I, I want the full weight of the organization to rest on my shoulders and the other donors that you now have. Well, if a donor thinks about that, that's not what they want at all. So those are just a few of the deep flaws with the overhead ratio and using it as a as a proxy for good. Now, talk about compensation because I think that's a really uh, it's a great example. I was I was talking I was listening actually to a, a high ranking exec in a, in a charity that and and he was bragging about the fact this is this is after I'd read your book and it was a couple weeks ago. He was bragging about the fact that when they bring in more money for the – they have some revenue sources. When they bring that in, he said, not a penny goes to my salary. It all goes into the – toward the cause. And I thought at first, oh, yeah, that's great. And then my second thought was having read your book is maybe that's not the best way. So explain why not. Well, we want to be able to recruit the best talent in the world to solve the world's largest social problem. And I think it's ridiculously naive for us to believe that economic incentive um, doesn't play a role in that. It's ridiculous to believe that people will do everything out of the goodness of their hearts. People will do a lot out of the goodness of their hearts, um, but they won't take a half million dollar salary cut, you know, and or they're less and likely to. 
they're less likely to take a half million dollar salary cut. Now, there are some people in the sector who say, look, well, I, uh, I work for $160,000 a year and I could be making more money in the for-profit sector, so everybody else should. Well, I think it's, it's arrogant to impose your, uh, your morality and your ethic on everyone else. If that works for you and you're happy, great, wonderful, good for you. But there may be somebody who's extremely valuable who could make a huge difference that wants three times that money, and, and you should not have the unilateral right to say that charities shouldn't be able to hire that person. It should all be based on... See, here's, here's another case where we, we look just at cost. What is that person costing us? And we don't look at the benefit side of the equation. You know, no, no first-year business school student would survive past the first semester if they didn't show the ability and the inclination to do a cost-benefit analysis. So the question is not, what does the person cost? The question is, what value is the person producing for that cost? So you could be getting someone, let's say we were looking at the simple issue of fundraising, you know, and, and you, you could be getting someone who's only paid $80,000 and the organization says, we don't pay any of our fundraisers any more than $80,000 but that person's only capable of raising $160,000 a year or two times their salary versus another person who might cost $300,000 but is capable of raising $3 million a year. Now which person is cheaper? But we don't ever look at it in that way. We don't ever look at it rationally. Even economists, you know, tend to... We have this religious, um, emotional outlook on the uh, perspective on these things instead of a instead of a rational one and and i think the the people who suffer in this world are desperate for us to take a rational look at these things now one of the virtues of of paying a relatively small amount for talent and in leadership roles in in charities is that it's going to draw people in who are going to, who are going to apply for those jobs who are devoted to the cause of course, it also draws people who don't have very good alternatives. So that's really your the other side. That's your point. But the flip side is is that it does tend to attract people who are willing to sacrifice money in return for their devotion to this particular cause. So if we offered competitive salaries that that attracted people who maybe right now are making three times as much, say, as a leader in a in a charitable organization, how do we monitor devotion? How do we monitor excellence? How do we monitor uh, whether people are effective, which is the point you you continually and correctly raise. You know, Russ, it's such an arrogant point of view for, for some people in our sectors to say, well, we don't want to introduce money into the picture because then that will uh, that will bring in people who don't have any passion for the cause. And only those of us who don't care about money are really passionate about the cause. Really, you mean the people who work at Apple aren't passionate about the iPhone and the iPad and beating the pants off of Android. Really, you mean the people at Google aren't passionate about an open system and spreading Android. A heart surgeon who makes a million and a half dollars a year isn't passionate about heart surgery and doesn't have patients coming to him or her based on how effective they are at performing heart surgery. It's absolutely sophomoric. And and other people, you know, people will say to me, if somebody wants to make a lot of money, it's a sign that they don't really belong in the nonprofit sector. But excuse me, it's those people that make a lot of money 
that make up the roles of your major gift roster and that make your organization possible. So how on earth can you say that they don't have any heart because they have an interest in money? You're looking at, at human beings as, as, as half a person, you know, that they don't have any interest in, let's, let's not get up, let's not talk about the abstraction of money, that they don't have any interest in sending their kids perhaps to a private school, that they don't have any interest in taking the best possible care of their parents in their old age, that they don't have any interest in being able to travel with their children around the world, that they don't have any interest in being able to make large charitable contributions. So here is another case where we have, you know, kindergarten level thinking about these things. Well, I really like your point because I always, in the aftermath of a natural disaster, when people decry high prices for fundamental things like water and milk and basics, and I always make the argument that if you let the price rise, you'll draw people who both want to make money, right? That's true. That's going to be one of the reasons right. they're going to bring load up their truck with plywood after a hurricane or a tornado and travel 400 miles. But the other reason is because they're going to help people. Why would you assume they only care about the money? The beauty of the money is you get both people – the full range of human uh, desires and, and, and facets. And what you're pointing out is that we've, we've culturally said, oh, no, this is only for people who don't care about money as if such people actually exist. They don't, of course. It's ridiculous. Um, right. Like if you, if you don't – you say you tell me that you don't care about money, I say to a hypothetical person, and the people shouldn't make money in the charitable sector. Then why, when I want to pay somebody three times the amount of money you're making, do you get all bent out of shape? You told me you don't care about money. <laughs> now, this seems pretty logical to me anyway, and I think even to non-economists when they hear it. What's interesting to me, and you chronicle this very nicely in the book, is that you, know, you think this would – people go, oh, yeah, that's a good point. You're right. Uh, they don't, though. Historically, they haven't. What what they do is when a charity is found to be paying a large amount of money to an executive, there's a scandal. And you give example right. after example of media coverage and how damaging it is. Right. Salaries that would be utterly unremarkable, six, $700,000 in the for-profit sector are scandalous in the non-profit sector. Meanwhile, you know, uh, the, the head football coaches at the top 20 universities in the United States each made at, less t at least $2.6 million last year, and they're all nonprofit universities. But God forbid you should pay the head of Save the Children $2.6 million, you know, call in, the, uh, call in the attorney general. Well, there are people who are offended by the college uh, coach salary, but yeah, I, I take your point. Uh, not, well, then let's move on to, to John Stewart, who makes $16 million a year, or David Letterman, who makes $28 million a year, or Judge Judy, who makes $45 million a year, you know, makes the college football salaries look uh, absolutely poverty scale in, in comparison. Uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, as background for this conversation, tell us about what you did at Pilata Teamworks. Uh, why it was controversial and why it was successful, what you actually accomplished, because it's an incredible story. Yeah, well, we created the, the AIDS rides and the breast cancer three days, as you said, which really led Explain to the what creation those... of... Yeah, they were very different types of charitable events. Uh, they were not, you know, a 5K Saturday morning walkathon or a 10-mile or a bike ride around town. 
these were really epic journeys that asked people to draw deeply from the well of their potential. So the AIDS ride, for example, in California was a seven-day ride, 600 miles from San Francisco to Los Angeles, or the Montana ride crossed the Continental Divide. The breast cancer three days were 60-mile-long walks that lasted three days, and you had to go the whole 60 miles. You had to go the whole three days. You had to sleep in a tent overnight, and you had to raise a minimum amount of four figures in order to do it. And that had never been done on these Thon events before. You know, they always welcomed people with open arms, no matter how much or how little they raised. So it was the, it was the combination of the, the multi-day epic grueling nature of these things with the four figure minimum fundraising requirement with, um, mass marketing, you know, full-page ads in the New York Times, uh, 60-second radio spots in the morning and drive time in the evening alongside the ads for cellular service. The, the combination of those three things created something new and created something very successful. And we had 182,000 people ride or walk in one of those events over the course of nine years. They raised a total of $582 million. $582 million. That's so mind-boggling. That must have it's been a lot of money, it right? Is. And, and 3 million Americans uh, donated to the event. And, the you know, the... These things have been distorted over time. Now it's sort of called the athletic event industry. It was never about athletes. In fact, we never marketed to athletes. We were looking for the 69-year-old woman who had lost her son to AIDS and needed a huge vehicle for the expression of all that anger and grief. We were looking for average people who wanted to do something extraordinary, and they came in droves, and, and they were the most... Beautiful examples of civic engagement and human compassion that you've ever seen in your life, you know, because every one of the participants had a story like that. So it was, it was about much more than the money and the money was huge. And this was 1993 when we started this. There was no lexicon for social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, doing well and doing good. There was no social enterprise program at Harvard. There was no Stanford Social Innovation Review. None of this conversation was happening. The lexicon was um, you're good if you sacrifice and you're a parasite if you don't and you try to make any money doing good. Um, and so I think it was it was the combination of an entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur, me, I was 32 years old at the time I started it, and, and I had a very public presence. You know, I would speak at all of the events and at the opening ceremonies, at the closing ceremonies. The company had my name on it in the in the tradition of the Walt Disney Company. You know, I, I just, my grandfather had a construction company called Pilata and Sons Development, and I just believed, you know, if you believe in something and, 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 um, you're gonna. You, then you stake your reputation on it, and you put your name behind it in the in the way that the for-profit sector often does. So I think it was the combination of that, the lack of any kind of a support uh, mechanism, academic or otherwise, uh, to argue against things like overhead, and the fact that we were doing things in a very business-like way, that we were buying full-page ads in the New York Times, that we were 
paying our executives six-figure salaries um, and the fact that we were so successful so quickly. All of those things created a story that the media could not resist. And so, you know, we got labeled as controversial for, you know, having an average overhead on these events of 40% on the breast cancer three days. Well, bear in mind, we were we were feeding people, you know, nine meals over the course of three days. We were putting up, you know, 4,000 sleeping tents, mobile catering, mobile showering, mobile medical units, uh, sewage systems that had to be moved every day. I mean, this massive military-like infrastructure, the fact that we were able to do it for 40 cents on the dollar was was remarkable. And you know, f- picture any kind of a vacation industry that had to show a 60% margin <laughs> on something like that, right? Yeah. So the, the, the $582 million that you raised, was that net of those costs or before yeah. those costs? That was gross. Our net over the course of that time was uh, $305 million. We... Um, we were a for-profit company, and that was part of the controversy as well, but we simply charged a fixed production fee for each event. We didn't do any commission-based fundraising, and uh, 100% of the money went to the charities, and the charities then reimbursed us on a dollar-for-dollar basis for all of our expenses because we were administering all of the expenses of the event, and then they paid us our fee. Um, a hindsight calculation uh ha- puts our fees at 4.01% of the gross for conceiving the events, producing the events, managing all the employees, administering all of the expenses, taking risk in many cases with our own capital to launch the events, 4.01% fee. It was close to what the credit card companies were getting for just processing the donations without taking any of that risk. The interesting thing, Russ, is that the media was crucifying us, and the media was making more money on each event than we were. We were basically a business development arm for the media because each of our events had like a four or five hundred thousand dollar paid media budget. So, so we'd get paid, you know, say three hundred seventy thousand dollars to produce an event which had a five hundred thousand dollar media budget. You know, so here, here, New York Times, here's seventy five grand for you for your full page ad. Here, Clear Channel, here's a hundred thousand dollars for you for the subway ads that we're going to run. So, the the tragic irony. Uh, abounded. Well, and the tragedy got stronger because the organizations that you benefited with that money after the controversy in the media, my understanding is, is that they said, well, we'll do it ourselves. Yeah, exactly. How'd they do? um, They didn't do well. The, uh, The San Francisco AIDS Foundation and the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center decided after we had 50% overhead on our California AIDS ride in the year, uh, I think it was 2000, 2000 or 2001, which was higher than our overhead had, had been in previous years for a number of one-off factors, reasons, excuse me. They said, we're going to go do it on our own and lower this overhead from 50%. When you do an apples-to-apples comparison, I have it in the book, and I don't have that in front of me, but their their overhead went up to something like 65%, and their net income went down from $6 million with us to, I think, about $1.5 million on their own. So a $4.5 million loss in one year of unrestricted money for aid services, and that continued the, the next year as well. Um, the, the 
the delta over the course of several years was was pretty huge. Um, I think now, maybe whatever it is, ten years into it, they they might be. I don't I don't know. They might be up to the level that we were at in two thousand one. Now, when they left, the Avon decided, well, the the Palata Teamworks contracts must not be enforceable. You know, the contracts that say we own the event and you won't produce it without us. So we're going to test those contracts and we're going to go do the breast cancer three days on our own. Well, what happened there was 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 truly dramatic in the worst possible way. Their net income went from um, $70.9 million with us in 2002 down to uh, $10 million in 2003. So a $60 million loss of unrestricted income for breast cancer research in one year, and, and their overhead went up. And uh, I don't know that they've ever recovered those numbers. I know for the next two or three years, they they didn't come close to recovering the numbers that we had in 2002. That's an incredible story. Now, let's move to some of the other issues you raised that you talked about uh, at the beginning of the podcast. Let's talk about advertising. Uh, Right now, charities don't advertise very much for reasons you've talked about. What should they be doing? They should be building market demand for their philanthropy. You know, they, this is something that unfortunately the, the public under, doesn't understand because it often gets explained in very complicated ways. But the basic premise is, look, we have to let these organizations spend more money on fundraising so that they can recruit more donors and so that they can raise more money and have more money to implement their programs. And so when I say do more advertising, I mean build more demand. And that could be in the form of television advertising or newspaper advertising or digital advertising. It could also be in the form of hiring more major gift officers, um, doing more direct mail, uh, you know, putting more money into traditional and new forms of, of fundraising to bring in more donations. The uh, charitable giving is remained stuck at about 2% of GDP ever since we started measuring it in the U.S. in the 1970s. And that's a really important number because it tells us in four decades, the nonprofit sector hasn't taken any market share away from the for-profit sector. Well, if you think about it, if you if you don't let these organizations spend money building market share, how are they going to build more market share? And that, you know, that, that 2% translates into about $300 billion annually, but most of that money goes to hospitals and higher education and religious institutions. Yeah, Yeah, only 15% of it goes to health and human services charities, so that's about $45-$50 billion a a year. Now, that's just not nearly enough to um, solve problems like homelessness and violence against women and, and cure cancer and multiple sclerosis prevent suicide and all of the different things that that money is supposed to do. So it's obvious on the face of it that we need more money. How do we get how do we get more money? Organizations have to raise more money. How do they do that? Make an investment in it. So, you know, from a, a perspective at scale, that's what needs to happen. If we could if we could move charitable giving to 3% or 4% of GDP, that would and, and have that money go disproportionately to health and human services charities, because those are the ones we encourage to invest in their growth. You know, you're talking a tripling, a quadrupling, a quintupling of the size of that sector. Well, now you're potentially t- 
talking about the kind of scale it would take to solve these problems. Well, my, you know, bottom line I tell people is, you know, you, you can argue with me till you're blue in the face. The, the basic point is this. If you don't want to see things change, if you want to see these problems stick around for a long time, we have a really great system for doing that. Yeah, the status quo. Um, yeah. Well, do people argue with you a lot? Well, I have to say that the response inside the sector to these arguments has been overwhelmingly positive, enthusiastic, passionate, like people are jumping up and down saying, yes, this is what I've always thought. I'm glad somebody finally said it. What do we do about it? And then, How do we get there you know, from you, have, you have 7% of people who, who like to harp on the executive compensation thing, you know, um, like you have some percentage of donors who really are just never going to give um, because they're cheap and they make up all kinds of reasons, you know, charities are wasteful and this, this and that. So, you know, you, you, Robert Kennedy said 25% of the people are against everything all of the time. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing a little better than that. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Now, you know, I love your passion and I love your point about social problems and when they, these organizations need to get bigger. One of the challenges they face, which is independent of the issues that you raise is that the federal government spends a lot of money and state and local government spends a lot of money on these causes, which makes it harder for private charities to get started in these areas, to thrive in these areas. And just to take an, an example from this week, uh, it's very interesting, a terrible tragedy in, in Oklahoma from the tornado. just happened a few days ago, an, an incredible uh, gesture uh, and kindness. Uh, Kevin Durant of the Oklahoma City Thunder, the basketball team, uh, donated a million dollars. Now I don't know what he gave it to. It's that's a lot of money. I don't care how much. I don't care how much he makes. A million dollars is a lot of money to give away. So I don't know who he gave it to or, or what effectiveness it'll have. But what's striking when I thought about it is that one of the things that deters people, that stops people from giving, is that that's going to be declared a federal disaster area. There's going to be a huge amount of federal money and some state money, but mostly federal that's going to go there. So I'm going to be contributing to Oklahoma through my taxes. And my incentive to do that through private organizations is reduced. Now, private organizations can still raise money if they go to work on aspects of the problem that the federal government doesn't touch. They can get money if they do it better than the federal government does, uh, than, than the federal activities. That's certainly true. But don't, don't you – do you agree that, that the, one of the handicaps for the growth in the, in the charitable sector is the involvement of government in these areas? I do. You know, I, I absolutely think that uh, government crowds out charitable giving, uh, not only because of your sentiment about it, but you just you have less money to, you know, to give to charity. So so you've got about, I think, you know, you get about three hundred billion dollars a year coming in from contributions. I think you have about another three hundred, four hundred billion dollars a year in fee for services. And then you get another three, four, five hundred billion coming from the government. So it's really it's like a one point one, one point two trillion dollar sector. But that that government money comes with so many strings attached that it it really contaminates it and 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 hampers its ability to to do effective things. So you know, for one thing, you've got government officials from some central place telling organizations that work on the ground how they want them to spend the money instead of the organization that works on the ground getting to decide for themselves then you've got the federal government 
uh, or state government saying we will only allow you to to, to use say 11% of this for overhead. Well, what if the organization's overhead is is actually 18%? So the the government's not paying for 7% of it. So the organization has to go find that money somewhere else. It has to steal it from other programs. Now, if the government money is disproportionately large, then you're talking about a, a real underinvestment in um, administration and, and organizational strength. So, you know, I think that's why you see you know, in, in Europe, there's so there's so much government uh, social service that you see much lower levels of charitable giving. You know, uh, I don't think it's because they're not as nice as we are. It's possible, but I don't think that's the reason. Yeah, it's just that their assumption was, well, government takes care of all of that, and you know, if we we could be getting to a place where we're not far from that here in the United States. You know, it'll be interesting to see what the Affordable Care Act does in terms of uh, people feeling that they need to give to, you know, free community medical clinics and things like that. Uh, I think that'll probably take a, a decade or so to work its way out. So, uh, but the, but the real issue I think is the, is the government dictating how all that money gets spent. So you, you don't have individual ingenuity, um, small organization innovation coming to bear on these problems. You've got big bureaucratic central direction. Well, I interviewed Paul Tuff, who's the author of How Children Succeed, and the book's a very interesting look at the challenge of childhood and grit, determination, uh, self-control, achievement. And basically, he says, you know, most of our efforts to do that through the government have failed. Um they don't have the right levers. They don't have the right tools. But he gives the example in his book of the Harlem Children's Zone, which is this incredible holistic approach to helping children. It's not just, oh, we're going to make a better school. We're not just going to have a good nutrition program. We're not going to just give some help to single parents who are struggling with time and other issues. We're going to do it all. And that organization has grown and grown and grown. And, and in the podcast, in the interview, and in his book, Paul complains about the fact that the head of the Harlem Children's Zone has to spend a lot of time fundraising. And wouldn't it be better if they just had a lot of money from the government? My attitude is that's why – one of the reasons he's successful is he has to convince people he's spending their money well. And that's what makes right. that program work, and we need more of that. We need the government to get out right. of the way to let those entrepreneurs like yourself create new solutions to these problems that are very difficult to solve. Well, and we have a fundamentally broken marketplace uh, you know, we in the cell phone business, we we have a a, a very healthy marketplace because um, the information is highly accurate. When I buy an iPhone, I I know immediately uh, the quality of that device as compared to uh, you know a, a Samsung phone, for example. Not so with charity. When I give a donation. When I'm considering giving a donation to charity, I'm looking at overhead ratios because that's what I've been taught. So I give to the charity with the lower overhead. Well, as I said in the example of the soup kitchens, what if that means you're giving to the soup kitchen with the rancid soup? Um, in the case of, gov or, or of maybe, government or grants, maybe, maybe the you, have, you have all of these different organizations um, fighting for government money, not on the basis of the impactfulness of the programs, but on the basis, again, of overhead ratios. Well, 
it's like it's like using the uh, fuel gauge to figure out how fast you're going. I mean, it could not be more broken. So if we wonder why we're not creating social change, we're not incentivizing it. The only thing we're incentivizing is low spending on overhead. No wonder problems aren't getting solved. So I want to come back to a question I asked you a few minutes ago, and we went off. You went off on a different part of the question. So I'm on the board of a. Or let's say, let me reverse that. I'm considering giving to a charity. I'm thoughtful. Uh, I'm not going to just look at the overhead ratio. I'm not just going to look at its rating based on that. I want to know if it's solving the problems. One of the challenges here is that in the for-profit world, we have a way to measure whether the the, the organization is is achieving its goal, which is profit, the bottom line. Some charities have some revenue sources, but in general, the, the more interesting ones don't. They're not selling anything. They're selling something, excuse me, but they're not collecting money for what they sell. They're trying to achieve something, and they don't have very good measures. They don't have any often of whether they're achieving it. So how is the donor or the board member or the, the head of the charity, how do I find out whether I'm doing a good job? Two things. We need an information infrastructure in the United States for this, and I've written about the need for what I call an iTunes for charity that has – um, narrative and financial and impact information that's user-friendly on every single organization in the country that's updated regularly, that's online, and that's uh, um, uh, objectively gathered. We need an infrastructure like that, and it isn't going to happen for two, three million dollars. It's going to be expensive to build, but relatively cheap compared to the amount of money we give to charity. In the absence of that, what can the average person do? Well, they should consider themselves a philanthropist. You know, the, the institutional funders and the affluent have co-opted that term so that when you talk about philanthropy, we, you think you're talking about Bill Gates or the Ford Foundation and not the, the nurse who gives $75 out of her paycheck every month. Well, she, every month. Well, she's a philanthropist as well. And she should be Yes, when a disaster like like Oklahoma happens, you know, you don't have time to do a lot of research. You want to give $50 to the Red Cross. Okay, but you should look in the context of your whole life at your philanthropic giving and ask yourself, what are the causes I care about deeply? What impact do I want to have on them? And what organizations could help me have that impact? And go do some research in the same way you do research before you cast a vote for president or in the same way that you do research before you buy a new washer dryer. You have a right to uh, go to the Pine Street Inn in Boston and say, I'd like to meet with your executive director or I'd like to meet with your development director and get a tour of your facilities and find out how you're trying to end homelessness in Boston. People have to take some personal responsibility for their giving. They have to get off of this addiction to simplicity. Because, you know, ultimately the, the enemy isn't just the overhead ratio. It is our addiction to simplicity. And we run the risk if we don't make that distinction of trading one simplistic measure for another. And now you'll have charities, charity watchdogs saying we give them three stars on effectiveness. Well, how'd you measure that? Well, we looked at their website to see what they say about sure. effectiveness. Yeah, we looked you at, know? we looked at their video to see if it, if I tear it up when I watch the video. Right. No, but I think you're right. I think the, you need – it would be great. It's an entrepreneurial opportunity for somebody to create an organization that monitors charitable activity and gives real ratings based on not just what tugs on your heartstrings or, or overhead or other things, but whether they're innovative, whether they 
when they're trying to effectively solving the problems they purport to solve. In the short run, before that organization comes into being, I would argue uh, one of the lessons from what you're talking about is, is you tend to give locally because you know something about the organization. You know something about the people who run it. You know something about their quality. The challenge is if you want to give to a large national organization, it's very difficult to get that information right now. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you yeah, yeah if you want to give to say Alzheimer's research, right? Um, and you and you're not you're not a scientist. Uh, so I I think what we have right now are the watchdog agencies. You know the Better Business Bureau and Charity Navigator and Charity Watch, and they have tiny budgets. You know the first two have a little over a million dollar budget each every year. Charity Watch, I think, is like. A five hundred thousand dollar budget. People think they're these huge organizations. They're tiny. Between the three of them, they have thirty employees. Um, they don't measure effectiveness, uh, and that's what we have for an infrastructure in America for telling donors what's happening with three hundred billion dollars in contributions every year. So it seems to me, you know, one of the ways to move in the direction you're talking about is to go through the boards. So most charities. It's a phenomenon I've noticed in, in my limited experience with these issues. I've been on the board of, of a few organizations. They have become more, I would call it, businesslike. Um, and some of the about, things about that are good and some of the things are not so good. But basically, board, boards of directors of charities, which used to be something of a rubber stamp, have, have in recent years been more aggressive. They've tried to bring some sort of measurement to what the charity is doing. Again, I don't think that's always – Measurement's better than no measurement as long as you can measure something valuable. When you start measuring things because you have to measure something, oftentimes I think people measure things for the wrong things and then incentivize the wrong things. But in theory, the people who can play the role of of, of legitimate, real watchdog are the people on the boards who have some experience with effectiveness, who have some experience with investment and advertisement, the things – advertising, the things you care about. I think the challenge is, is that those people – have the cultural mindset that you're fighting and find are very uncomfortable bringing their entire business quiver to the uh, to the archery game when it's nonprofit. They do. They they very much do. And um, organizations have a responsibility to train board members from the get go and and let them know um, uh what it is they, they really want from them and let them know what the culture is and what the goals are and, and how it is that they're going to get there. And it's not, you know, this, this, this idea that we want charities to act more like business is disingenuous and cruel because we're not for a moment ready for charities to use the big league freedoms we really give to business. So a lot of people will kind of dumb down my argument and say, oh, he's, he wants charities to act more like business. No, that's not what I'm saying. What, what I'm saying is you're putting the cart before the horse is that we don't give charities the permission to act like business. And, and until we do, we should stop preaching to them that we want them to, and, and we should absolutely give them that permission. But you're right. You know, Board members come in and they say, we're going to run this place more like a business. Well, what they mean by that is we're going to draw more blood from the stone. We're going to do even more for less, which right. is the opposite of how a business becomes successful. Yeah. That's exactly yeah, right. I agree with have you, have you have you worked uh, with some boards to try to change their mindsets? Um, yeah, I have. You know, I do. I do a lot of speaking uh, around the country. I'm speaking to a United, a local United Way board next week. I've did a number of uh, YMCA CEOs. They're 
always board members at the talks I give, and they react extremely well to this message. You know, they, they don't know any better. They were raised on the same religion as the rest of us, and, and people lead busy lives, and unless somebody educates them, you know, how are they going to, how are they going to know? You mentioned the United Way. I'm um, I'm not a big fan of the United Way, and I don't know if you want to weigh in on this, but I'm going to just mention this because I think they're an example of the problem that you're talking about. Uh, the United Way's selling point is that they economize on uh, fundraising costs. So there's only one campaign, and they have economies of scale. The disincentive is, is that once you're in the campaign, you don't have to work so hard to attract donors. And uh, I give all my charitable donations to individual organizations because uh, I think that's just – that model is the, – dis- the, the incentive effects are awful. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I haven't thought about that issue in particular. I suppose it's a little bit like term limits, which I'm not really in favor of because it lays off the responsibility for voting on this automated system. Where, well, I don't have to vote because I know in two terms that, you know, the the person will be out of there. Um, and yeah, so I mean, there's this, there's, it, 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 I think it ties into the argument that I made about a broken marketplace that isn't operating on the kind of um, dynamic, up to date information that the consumer goods and services markets do. Now, here's a question from EconTalk listener Justin Palmer via our Facebook page, and I'd encourage you out there to uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, Justin asks, what about the charitable deduction? Should we keep it? Given your encouragement of of a for-profit mindset, do you think we should keep the uh, charitable deduction? That's a big question. Um, it depends on what we want to incentivize. If we If we want to incentivize more giving to health and human services charities, then I think we should. And I think it's a, it's a way for the government to get services at 50% on, 50 cents on the dollar because yes, they're, 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 they're losing $50 that they could have gotten in taxation, but the donor is giving $100 to social services. So the, so the government is up uh, a net of $50, you know, services they would have otherwise had to provide to the tune of a hundred dollars but you know I was reading Ken Stern's great book charity for all and I had always been sort of unconscious about the distinction between nonprofit and for-profit hospitals and have always felt a little dumb because I didn't understand the difference well after reading his book I didn't feel so dumb because there really isn't much of a difference No, it's a sham it's a sham Yeah, there there is no difference. So in that case, well, no, they, there shouldn't be any any tax exemption there if they're competing with the for-profit hospitals, and the for-profit hospitals are actually providing a little bit more free care than the non-profit hospitals are. Or, you know, you have to ask about you know charities that run health clubs and things of that sort, where there's there's direct competition with for-profit industry. Uh, you know. Um, the uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission is not for profit, you know. That paid what's his name Grasso there tens or hundreds of millions of dollars or something. So I, a large amount. I think we really we we really need to revisit that and 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 ask ourselves what is it that we we actually want to incentivize um, and limit the 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 tax deduction to that. 
So I really like your idea of imagining a world where charities uh, advertise on Super Bowl Sunday, take out full page ads in the New York Times. But you also talk about investment. What kind of investments are charities discouraged from doing now that they should be doing? Well, <clears throat> virtually anything other than capital investment, but uh, you know, in in buildings and things, um, they, they're they're not they're not investing in their growth because that gets labeled as overhead. That's that's the primary area. They're they're also not investing in their strength, and you know, they're not investing in their IT. They're not investing in their human resources. They're not investing in their talent, which is why you see. Uh, high turnover, especially like in the, in the development field. You know, it's one, it's one thing. It's bad enough to tell people we want you to work out of the goodness of your heart for, you know, two times, three times less than what you could make in the for-profit sector. And then some people say yes to that. Oh, but on top of that, we want to deprive you of all of the resources that you need to really capitalize on your potential. Now, now you've got a real losing proposition. Okay, you know, I'm willing to work for less money, but I'm not willing to waste my life, um, you know, with, without with my the hands tied behind my really, back. Uh-huh. Yeah, with my hands tied behind my back. Exactly. What about uh, you talk in the book about the possibility of uh, of a some kind of stock market or capital market for charities where donors could invest? Explain how that might work. Well, I guess initially, you know, because you can't own a charity, the state, the state owns a charity. Uh, I mean, one way around that would be to, to create for-profit charities where you keep the feature of tax deductibility, but otherwise, you know, uh, there can be equity ownership in the organization. So you're still producing charitable good, but you're not putting them at a disadvantage by stripping away the ability to, for donations to be tax deductible. And and some people say, well, that a for-profit company tax deductible. Well, then there's two. There's a difference between tax exempt and and tax deduction. They shouldn't be tax exempt. They should be taxed on their profits, but they should not be. They should be able. They should be able to deduct all of the expenditures on charitable good. And donors giving money should be able to deduct that from their taxes under the simple theory that. There's no benefit inuring to the donor. They're they're doing something with the hope of social impact. So, you know that that would actually be one way to create a real stock market for charity is make these organizations for profit. Uh, in some cases, another way to do it in the case of the tax exempt organization would be create debt markets, and um, so that you know I could put I could put money into the 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 for uh, the uh, fundraising operation of a particular organization with the promise that I'll get uh, you know I'll get 20% back or 70% back because it's a high risk proposition. I don't I don't own any equity, but I'm getting a high interest rate on the on the debt that I'm financing that I'm making available. And I think to make that practical, you'd have to have it be some kind of standalone event without because money's fungible. Money can cut across different activities. So, you know, if if you were doing let's say I invested in the Pilata Teamworks concept, a three day ride, uh, I'd be lending you money to, for all the overhead that you had to put up, all the investment you had to make in the tents and the food and the people, et cetera, before you had any donations coming in. And then you would pay me back a, a competitive rate of interest. 
on that. Yeah, exactly. Right. That I mean, would I work. could pay high. You know, in the case of the breast cancer three days, we uh, we launched that with a three hundred fifty thousand dollar investment over the course of five years. It netted one hundred ninety four million dollars. So you know, we could we could have paid VC rates if somebody said, "I, I want I want ten times my money back." Uh, okay, three point five million dollars out of one hundred ninety four million net done. Yeah, and the tragedy is, is that how many events like that aren't taking place because they can't do that. Exactly. Yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, eventually, we were able to get bank financing for for our events because we were doing a lot of deposit business with one particular bank. But, um, you know, you, you said you might have to limit it to a particular event. Not necessarily. You know, a donor could say, all right, here's, uh, here is whatever, AIDS Project Los Angeles. They raise $20 million a year. They have a $2 million a year fundraising operation. I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to put $2 million more into their fundraising operation and I want a return of X percent on, um, you know, anything in excess of 10% growth in their fundraising department. And if the charity thought, yeah, that, that's, that's fair and that accurately assesses what our growth would be without the investment, then they could, then they could offer a return on the whole development department. So you have a a great book. You have a great TED Talk. Uh, a friend of mine just saw it at a – he's on the board of a charity, and they all watched it and talked about it. And so you're, you're causing by yourself – I'm sure there are a few people who agree with you, but in general, it's kind of – it's something – there's a little bit – it's a little bit of a lonely effort you're involved in, right? Um, it, it's her, There's something heroic about it given this cultural uh, barrier that, that you're trying to, to bring down. Um, is it a quixotic effort? Are you tilting at windmills here? Do, do you think we can move in, in the uh, – let me say it differently. There's a lot of pro-capitalism stuff in your book, which jumps out at – I think at some at some readers. I love it, but I'm sure some readers go, whoa, whoa, I thought this guy liked charities and he loves capitalism. So we have a cultural problem with capitalism already. You're suggesting we ought to embrace that and bring charities into that world, which – I'm all in favor of as long as we let people make losses. That's real capitalism, not the crony kind. Um, can we get there from here? Do you have a? Do you have some optimism? Do you feel like there's some traction for your ideas? Yeah, there's this great quote by C.S. Lewis. It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's that it has been found difficult and so has not been tried. And that's true of capitalism. You know, we, we haven't tried a pure uh, methodology of capitalism. And the, the evidence of it is that we don't use it in this charitable sector. If we did, we could, we could sort of not to demonize capitalism, but we could beat capitalism over at its own game. You know, you, you, you use capitalism to promote love. Do I think we can change this? Do I, first of all, it's a paradox. But people in the sector and, and very left leaning liberal people in the sector get it. You know, they toil all their lives and they see they're not having any impact and they're under enormous pressure to, to produce results with no resources to do it and they're absolutely fed up with it. They voted for Barack Obama and they have Nancy Pelosi bumper stickers on their car and they love uncharitable, you know. So it's, it's a, it, it is and it isn't a, a paradox. So I have no doubt that 
you know, 75 percent of the of the sector is behind it and wants to see change and recognize this is an idea whose time has come. We are operating off of an ethic and a system that was that has religious roots and that is 400 years old and doesn't work anymore. We need to get we need to change the way the public thinks about it. Okay, well, that might be where it gets quixotic. One would think. I don't think so. I think you can change the way the public thinks about these things, and I think you can do it very quickly. Um, you you can look at examples of it. Um, you know, look at the, look at uh, the way the pork industry changed the way people think about pork from a fatty heart attack waiting to happen to the other white meat, or the way the egg industry changed the image of the egg as a high cholesterol uh, food that was bad for you to the incredible edible egg. They just got methodical about it. The nonprofit sector has remained utterly silent about these issues. It has no anti-defamation mechanism like other communities have, so it takes punches to the face in the media all the time and doesn't respond. It has no legal defense fund mechanism the way the Mexican-American community and the African-American community and the gay and lesbian community do, so its First Amendment rights are constantly trampled. It has no you know, pork the other white meat advertising campaign where it's actually trying to tell the public in the media what overhead actually is, um, and it doesn't organize itself. There is no database where, you know, all 10 million people who are employed in the nonprofit sector are listed and you could punch a button in order to get them to advocate on behalf of themselves. So we we just need to do those things. And I'll, I'll tell you where my faith and the ability for us to change this comes from. One thing, like if we can change the way people think about pork, we can absolutely change the way they think about charity. But secondly, I happen to be gay, and I'm 52 years old now. And when I came out to my parents when I was 21, they were totally depressed, and they thought, you know, you'll never have a normal life, and you'll never have a family, and you'll never have children. Well, it's 30 years later. I'm married to a wonderful man that I've been with for 12 years. I have three beautiful children. They're our own biological kids. I could not have dreamed that that kind of change would happen in the United States in the course of those 30 years, but it has. You know, if we can if we can make that kind of change on something as polarizing as gay rights and gay marriage, we can absolutely get people to think more rationally about charity. My guest today has been Dan Pilata. Dan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.